Hello, my name is Tom Kehoe and I'm the Global Head of Research and Communications at AMA. Welcome to the Global Hedge Fund Benchmark Study podcast series. Driven by our collective commitment to supporting the hedge fund industry, AMA combined forces with Simmons & Simmons and Seward & Kissel to produce the Global Hedge Fund Benchmark Study, which is freely available for you to read at AMA.org and at Simmons' website and Seward & Kissel's website. The overall premise of the study was to look at the health of the hedge fund industry. We are extremely grateful to all the fund managers and investors who took the time to participate in this study and for sharing their perspectives with us in the many interviews that we conducted. This podcast series discusses its six key takeaways. These are industry performance, fundraising, fees, sustainable investing and ESG, digitalization and the future for the hedge fund industry. And it is the last of these takeaways that's the subject of today's discussion, focusing on the future for the industry and how firms are positioning themselves. Joining me today is Dan Ornstein, employment law partner with a particular focus on asset management and hedge funds at Simmons & Simmons London, and Rob Van Grover, partner at Seward & Kissel New York in the investment management group. Gentlemen, it's great to be able to speak to you both. Thank the you, past year has seen key person risk move up the list of priorities for firms to consider given the COVID-19 disruption. Do you agree that this is the source of renewed focus among investors? I do agree. Um, I think always performance is, is the key focus amongst investors above everything. You know, if we say a property, it's location, location, location. I think amongst investors, it's performance, performance, performance. But when you go beneath that, there is a real consciousness that there are star performers, key people, both in terms of performance of particular funds, particular strategies, and also keeping funds together with strong links to their teams and strong links to other investors. And I think in the past year with COVID, where there's been an increased volatility within the markets, a fear of volatility amongst people. These are reasons why this has risen up the agenda, certainly for what I'm seeing, amongst investors. And they want to have some comfort that some of the people they banked on to deliver their performance are going to be staying within funds and want to know more about what's being done to retain people. So we are dealing with that quite a lot. Rob, I don't know if that echoes what you're seeing. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Dan, and thanks, Tom. Um, yeah, it echoes what we're seeing, and I think it's, you know, when you're in the midst of a health crisis, the fragility of any individual, um, even someone who's otherwise healthy, you know, can suddenly become impaired, and then the question is, is the organization uh, prepared to weather that? And so do they have the right procedures, policies, personnel in place to handle this, you know, the absence of that key person. And so do they have others who can support that person in the event that they are temporarily out of commission? And while that might not have been as important before, it's a lot more important now when anyone you know, can be taken ill all of a sudden and be out of commission for a period of time. And and it's the key person risk or is it key person's risk because of 
what we had and what you alluded to, Rob, with the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, so it didn't just be something that would affect one individual, but it's affected many people. Right. So were investors looking across the lines of business and asking specific questions around key persons? And to what extent has that seen some changes maybe in some of the legal terms or in some of the docs between investors and firms? Well, I think people are, you know, even though ODD is being done remotely, I think that people are taking special care to see how the operations are actually faring under this stress, under the pressure of working remotely, of not being together. How is supervision and how are systems um, proceeding? Um, is the team sort of working together as, as Dan mentioned? Um, and so, plus, as Dan also mentioned, it's easier for flight, right? Because if all you're doing is turning on your computer, you could be turning it on for a competitor. And, um, you know, you're not looking out your, your door and seeing the other people working. Um, and so sort of retaining people is, is a bit of a challenge. So all of these things. So yes, it's more than just the one individual. It's making sure that all the support is there that generated the performance. And are these risks heightened because of the hybrid environment that we're likely to work in going forward and the decentralized environment that we worked in you know, up until recently? And some of us are still working in that decentralized environment. And Tom, I, I think you're absolutely right. The risks are heightened because when one looks at the you know, the pros and the cons of working from home, working in an office, hybrid working, and wanting the best of both worlds, what we're hearing universally is one thing people have missed this year is the creation of a corporate culture, you know, a team ethos, the collaboration, the moments of inspiration, you know, the the happy interaction that takes place in offices. And if you lose that, or if you don't take steps to protect it in these difficult circumstances, I think you're inevitably increasing flight risk because the emotional sense of loyalty, the feeling towards a firm that people have, and I'm conscious it sounds a bit wishy-washy, but I think it's very real, starts to detangle. And once you look at the workplace in an even more transactional nature, the flight risk increases. Because if you're looking at your workplace as somewhere I like to go, somewhere I enjoy being with the people, something I'm excited about, somewhere I can build the future, um, your stickiness, your desire to stay is much greater. And these are really difficult questions that the pandemic has raised. Yeah, and I think that, as you said, Tom, it's going to be a post-pandemic issue as well, because as people are coming back, they're adopting more hybrid policies, which means that there's going to be sort of continued stress and strain on all these considerations. And you've touched on it, Rob and Dan, uh, the importance of culture. You know, part of that, central to that, is talent management, and a report highlights that that's become ever more critical for firms. So what are the things that you're seeing across the clients that you speak to and across the market more broadly when it comes to firms hiring and retaining talent 
and to the extent that they're having to find ways of managing that culture during a time when we're decentralized or moving into a hybrid workforce. So the types of things we're seeing are a tilt towards the less transactional. And I think there's actually two factors that the current COVID environment that we spoke about before that's making people focus on this when they're sitting in their offices. And there's also a generational issue. I think the cultural aspect of a firm is of even more importance to a younger generation coming through than it was previously. People think about these things, the quality of life, the quality of the workplace, how to balance home and work, and with real ambition and drive as well. And again, I think the current crisis has catalyzed very deep thought about that, that maybe people were putting at the bottom of their agendas because it wasn't an immediate issue. It's created immediacy. So what practical measures are we seeing? We're seeing a huge focus within the industry on well-being type issues, you know, counseling programs, social issues, even online, people coming in to talk to people about well-being, people encouraging people, if you like, to bring their what we call their true selves into the office or even into the virtual office. Sort of a growing cultural belief that you don't have to have this work face all the time anymore. And the more we treat people for who they truly are and they can bring that wood into the office, the happier they'll be at work and the better they'll perform. And I think that has interacted as well with the enormous focus recently on DNI initiatives, because I think these two do interact as well. And I think the two work very harmoniously with each other, this view of bringing your true self. So we are seeing a massive focus on that, even amongst what I would call the ultra traditional, almost hard nosed transactional funds. And as a real wake up call or an appreciation that uh, culture needs to tilt, not necessarily in a radical way, but there needs to be more emphasis to these, what I'd call softer issues. Yeah. And what I, what I would add to that is that there's also, and you know, there are those organizations where they're looking at the, the sort of softer issues um, that, that Dan mentioned, and then others where <clears throat> management may be sort of more senior and looking more to a roadmap to the future, where they're also thinking more of profit sharing and potentially um, ownership sharing, either um, direct or synthetically. So very good segue, Rob, to, to the next part of, of this study when we're looking at you know, firms and repositioning themselves for the future. Um, our survey reveals that almost 70% of those that participated have a succession plan. Are you surprised by this finding, given that the contention from some is that the hedge fund business is based on star individuals rather than you know, team effort and a meritocracy that comes with a team? Yeah. So I, I would say that I'm, I'm not surprised and it isn't inconsistent with a star system because especially for SEC registered advisors, even though the SEC was never able to produce a rule, even though they've tried, 
that would require managers to have a succession plan or a business continuity plan, which includes components of a succession plan, um, that even though they weren't able to adopt a rule requiring it, during exams, they always ask, and as a matter of fact, they have a special supplemental list of questions that they have now started to give out for exams during the pandemic. And so any SEC registered advisor um, who's been examined during the pandemic has received a list of questions from the SEC specifically asking for copies of their succession plan, their business continuity plan, which includes elements of <clears throat> You know, how does the firm work remotely? How do they address the absence of key individuals? So a succession plan in this instance isn't necessarily focusing on diminishing the importance of a key person. It's actually focused on what happens if that key person is unavailable for any reason. How does the firm continue now long term? Um, is there a succession or does it shut down? And shutting down is actually a succession plan as well. Um, so, um, and Dan, uh, you know, I don't know. No, it is. But, um, yeah. You said, Rob, I mean, that's very interesting that what you're suggesting is that this is a regulatory impetus, particularly in the US over the past 12 months. Um, Dan, is that the case elsewhere with other regulators in the UK? But also, you know, what do you see as being any factors that are particular to making succession planning such a hot topic over the last 12, 18 months? Well, you have the new SMCR regime and statements of responsibilities are key to that. So in contrast to, you know, not being formally brought in in the US, it has been formally brought in in the UK. So that's a, I'd say that's a very first, it's a first cousin of succession planning issues. But of course, once you start to tilt the culture in, in that way, saying, well, what happens when this person leaves because you've got a regulatory duty to do so, it also triggers thoughts, you know, more existential questions. Well, actually, what does happen if a star performer leaves? And on that point, I think there's no tension between the one hand, the focus on teams and the other hand, the focus on individuals, because I think this is very much a continuum. It's not an all or nothing everywhere. I think we know super strong star performers who could leave and bring investors with them, you know, to a large extent. And people who perform exceptionally well, but don't have that reputation in the market and will just be taken for their knowledge rather than their ability to you know, attract specific investors. But in all circumstances, you have, on the one hand, I think you have, you know, the star issue succession planning. And I think you have intergenerational succession planning that's extremely important because I think that I'm seeing we're at a lifespan in the industry where we have some extremely, you know, well-known founders of firms who may be looking for next steps or may be reluctant to step down and you have superstars of the next generation who can often feel that they're doing all the work but they don't get anywhere near the rewards and a lot of the investor connections are moving towards 
them as well as there's a changing of the guard. And I think one of the really difficult things I see in my practice is a willingness to acknowledge that amongst the, you know, the, the founding generations, because they see these vehicles as their, as their own. They see the next generation of talent almost as their children. And the thought that the child will want to take their role as head of the table is something they find psychologically difficult. Um, and can be a huge source of tension. And I strongly endorse facing up to those issues at an early stage because a consensual termination or a consensual, sorry, handover, it can be a super successful way of, again, bringing the best of, you know, the blended talent from all generations. But very often we, we don't see that. And we see Not things- Very interesting, very interesting, as, as you say, Dan. Um, and there are some examples, of course, of succession planning that just hasn't gone according to plan when individuals coming back and taking the reins again. So that conflict of interest, one could could say, should be good for the industry in that you've got these um, principals who've been in charge of their business for many, many years and have worked through many market environments and many market cycles. But they're, uh, I guess, their apprentices have come up to the ranks and are looking then to strike out themselves on their own. I think that can only be good for the development of the industry going forward. Would you agree, Rob? Absolutely. And and you see this, as Dan mentioned, take the form of either, you know, a grant to certain key employees, either a profit interests um, <clears throat> or a sale. Um, and then there are also the potential for bringing in strategic investors for a minority stake to also further institutionalize the manager. So there are a number of ways that this can take shape. Well, some fascinating insights from you both. Thank you very much for joining me on today's podcast series and hope to speak to you again in the future. Thanks, Tom. Pleasure, Tom.